This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. This is the American Toffee Podcast, your source for stateside views on Everton Football Club. Hosted by Alex Johnson and James Boyman. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the American Toffee Podcast. This is Alex, joined as always by my co-host James. Hey there, everyone. Today we are really excited to bring you another episode in our player profile series. But first, we'd like to give you a preview of the episode itself because we're going to talk about a couple other things. We're going to be talking about very quickly just the Bundesliga returning back to action is like the first quote unquote major league to uh, to start playing again during the COVID nineteen pandemic. Currently. We're going to touch on John Joe Kenny because, um, as I'm sure a lot are aware, he started he started with Schalke yesterday in that first match uh, to return. And then we're going to talk about um, some young players apparently departing Everton Football Club. And then we will move on into the player preview. First things first, James, uh, how do you feel about, in general, just the Bundesliga returning to action? I was really excited to actually have football to watch yesterday. And then when it came on, I was watching it and it just felt somewhat hollow. And I don't know if that's just because I inherently have less of an interest in watching any football that is not Everton, but the fact that there were no, the empty stadium just is so dis, dis, I don't know. It's, it's upsetting. It's weird. It's awkward. It is uncomfortable to see a player score. And then all the players just like stand at a distance and not really celebrate and even if they could celebrate together, it doesn't feel like there's any passion in it. I miss the passionate knee slides, the over-the-top running into the, the stadium. You could tell Dortmund thrashing Schalke yesterday. But it just it doesn't feel the same. And I know people are happy to have something to watch. But thinking about it from Everton's perspective, I don't know if I'd want to watch Everton for several weeks under these conditions. I don't know, Alex. Maybe Maybe I'm being a little dramatic, but what are your thoughts? No, I mean, I've honestly, I felt the same way. And like, one of the things I really noticed other than just, well, A, I wasn't expecting to feel this way when I watched, like I was so excited, you know what I mean? Like you and I've talked about it, like we planned on sitting down and watching these matches. And um, I think one of the biggest things was just how quiet it was. Like even the commentators you could tell felt very awkward and were saying just awkward things because, you know, so much can be said for tuning into NBCSN on a Saturday morning and you hear the fans being very loud and you hear, you hear some music being played in the stadium in the background and the commentators are having to raise their voice over all of the noise in the stadium. You know what I mean? You don't realize what it is or, or what's missing until it's obviously missing. But um, it, it just, there was no, there was uh, the best way possible I can put it is there was no energy. As you said, there's no passion. Um, I think the players were having a hard time getting into it too as well and and i mean we both know you and i will be watching everton if this if this occurs in the pl um but it definitely won't be it won't be as enjoyable nonetheless it just feels like an exercise it just feels very like like truly down to a business and all of the other passion elements and the joy that football brings have kind of been almost sucked out of the game just for the point of of getting the money from the tv deals and it just makes me feel very cynical about the, the way that the leagues are going about resuming. 
the Premier League resuming seems to be a foregone conclusion at this point. I think even though Liga in France was ruled null and void, I can't imagine Premier League will follow suit. But to have to watch several weeks of what I saw in the Bundesliga on the scale of the Premier League, it doesn't make me all that excited at all. And honestly, from Everton's perspective as a club and as a fan base, if they rule the season null and void, it's not like we're we have a realistic chance at this point of getting Europa League. That's kind of a pipe dream. I would be just as happy to see this the season called off than to have to watch Everton, you know, without fans, without the Goodison Park advantage on our side, without the crowd at our back. I'm worried for the results that that may come from having to play in front of empty stadiums. Well, especially since our first match to return is the second derby of the season against Liverpool. Right. So it, it's I don't think any of us really want to uh, complete the season to begin with because we have nothing to gain from it, really. Um, but on top of that, that's just not a great match to go back to. And, and it almost feels like we're destined to be um, to be let down in that case. But um, to, to move on quickly, John Joe Kenny has been on loan at Schalke. Everyone, all the Everton fans were very excited about this because it felt like, you know, Everton is finally moving into that tier of clubs in which we've got good young players in the first team that can be loaned out to other good uh, squads in the top five divisions, right? Schalke in the Bundesliga is no joke. They're they're a good team. And so I'm, I'm curious to think or to hear what you think about his season so far uh, with Schalke, James. At the beginning of the season, when he was loaned out, I think everyone was really optimistic that this would be a platform for him to go and prove himself and show that he's Everton's right back of the future to displace Seamus Coleman. And then maybe we wouldn't need to seriously consider signing Jabril Sidibe on a permanent deal. However, A, Schalke absolutely throttled yesterday in, in you know, I, I saw a lot of Everton fans picking Schalke as their Bundesliga team because of him and the fact that they're blue and all of that, only to then get throttled 4-0 in their derby against Dortmund. So not the best result overall. And, and Kenny, it's interesting because I was reading some articles that came out mid-season that you know, David Wagner, the the manager of Schalke, was really, really bullish on him, was optimistic that he might be a permanent fixture in their side. He's played almost every single game starting for Schalke this season. But with that said, his stats don't exactly jump off the page at you. You're looking at 0.3 shots per game. Obviously, shots for a defender, not that big a deal. Um, not 0.3 dribbles, like nothing that really makes you think. That, that's an offensive stats. And, and of course, in the Bundesliga, he does get forward. He does have two goals. But all of his stats seem to be fairly mediocre, and it really makes me question if he's ready, really ready to, or ever will be ready to make the step to the Premier League and lead Everton on the right-hand flank. Yeah, you know, I agree with you, right? So so with a fullback, I mean, I was about to say his defensive stats are pretty decent, right? You know, averaging like 1.6 tackles per match, 0.8 interceptions, 2.4 clearances, 0.8. He's only been dribbled past on average 0.8 times a match. So his defensive stats look good. But as we both know, James, like in in today's world, in in present day world soccer, a fullback unfortunately needs to do both well in order to propel Everton to uh, the levels that that we almost expect to be at over the next couple of years, right? So with that, um, he started off the season with Schalke hot. You know, he scored a goal very a goal very early on and, and had like Player of the Week or Player of the Month a couple times. I'm not sure, yep. but. It seems like it's been, it hasn't been a bad loan move. It's been good. He's been getting the game time that he wants. But 
obviously we were hoping that he would go kind of light it up and continue that momentum into next season. So now it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how Everton's plans kind of change a, because, you know, financial matters and, and COVID going on and how does that affect our transfer market in terms of cash? But B, just, you know, if we if if we still see John Joe Kenny as our possible starting right back next season over Seamus Coleman and, and what Ancelotti is going to think of him. Yeah. And the fact that he's 23 now is also he's no longer that a youth player, per se. And I think a lot of people still think of him that way. But you see all the the tremendous young players that are playing at a high level in the Premier League right now. And you think, well, if, if John Joe Kenny hasn't been able to do it yet, will he ever be able to? And it's hard. And we'll talk about in our next segment, a, a bunch of other young players who haven't quite made the grade, but it's hard to kind of put in perspective because he has been, he's captained his, his youth national side. He's captained the Everton youth setup and he's a boyhood blue. And so I think just by virtue of that, a lot of fans have a certain level of sentimentality about him. And I think we just need to maybe be a bit more ruthless with our mindset, with our youth players. And I think, again, with the next topic, talking about the players leaving, we kind of start to see that materialize through Marcel Brands and his his willingness to kind of shake things up a little bit. Absolutely. So we know that when Marcel Brands came in, it, it would it would take a little bit to really start seeing his effect on um, the, the academy and the the first team squad. And I think we're really starting to see that. And I think we're going to continue seeing that into the summer, specifically for the transfer window. But uh, according to the Liverpool Echo, we've got quite a few young players looking like they will not be extending their contracts and will be departing uh, this summer. Um, pretty much, I, I think, in my opinion, the most notable is Morgan Feeney, the young center back. He was the captain of the Premier League two winning side. He's been at Everton since age seven. Uh, he was currently out on loan at Tranmere Rovers, and and he is now being cut. I mean, I remember when I remember a couple of years ago when when a lot of fans thought that he really could start making the step up pretty quick and and hopefully contribute in the first team. And now, um, next thing you know, you know, Marcel Brands has just got him at the chopping block. It just seems like Morgan Feeney's another one of those players that, yeah, we had a really good U twenty three side for a few years. But a lot of those players were well within that age range of like 21, 22, 23. And it seems like the real, the realistic pathway for a player to a Premier League side through the youth setup is to be playing for the U23s at a much younger age, 18, 19, 20. And then you're finally starting to push for the senior side. It seems like if you're really well within the 22, 23 age range, there's, there's not, you're, you're just not ready to make that step up. Or if, and if you were, you would have made it already. And that seems to be kind of the realization that we're coming to with a lot of these other players. So you mentioned Morgan Feeney. And I think I agree. He's probably the biggest name on this list just because of, again, being a boyhood blue, the various awards that he's won since being at the club, but also Maddie Folds, Folds, who we brought in a couple of years ago on decent amount of money for a youth player, Alex Denny, Manas Mampala all players who are set to be released and it just seems like Marcel has seen enough and doesn't isn't convinced of their ability and it's time to move them on and it's depressing because as as Evertonians we always want our youth players to move up through the ranks and be successful but fact of the matter is it's a small subset that ever even do it even for the clubs that have very successful academies and the turnover is just part of Marcel Brands's MO and so I won't say I'm super sad to see all of these players go. I think hopefully we can bring in some some better quality with maybe more development potential to replace them. 
Absolutely. And then and then one that is actually set to sign an extension. This is we're kind of ending on a good note is Nathangelo Markello. Um if you're kind of tuned into the the youth squad or the youth system at Everton, uh that's a player's name that has been popping up many many times over the last uh year or two. So hopefully we can expect to see some good things from him and it seemed like he's he's supposed to be uh, loaned out to uh, a team in Holland as well. Yeah, so hopefully he's another one. I mean, Holland, interesting, would be an interesting loan move. Still not sure. I mean, if he signs a one or two year extension and gets a loan move, if he's going to be one that will ever make the cut, but certainly more promising than the rest of the players who are set to be released and, and all the best to them. I'm sure that they will all have successful careers somewhere in the football league. It just won't be with Everton and it's probably not going to be at the Premier League level, but that's nothing to be ashamed about. Plenty of plenty of football left for all of them to play in the rest of their careers. And with that, let's move on to our player profile of none other than Andre Gomez, a fan favorite, I think it's safe to say. Yeah, absolutely a fan favorite. So as a little bit of background, he was born in 93 in Grigio, uh, which is in the Porto district. I'm not going to try to pronounce all of the uh, all of the words for, for his uh, hometown or home city. Both of his parents, interestingly enough, were, were, were Porto fans, um, and and to further on that, surprisingly, I think to both of our surprise, he actually started his youth career at Porto in 2002. He, he trialed with Porto and was admitted to their youth setup, and he was there for about six years, like ages eight to 14. He captained a lot of his youth teams in the Porto setup until his very last season when he was cut. And uh, as a little fun fact, the training coordinator who released Gomez was Luis Castro, and he is actually the current manager of Shakhtar Donetsk. Donetsk. I can never pronounce that team, James. Donetsk. Close enough. And if you if you if you haven't already, go back and listen to our our previous episode, our player profiled on Bernard, and you will see that I uh, slaughtered that name about three times in that episode as well, because (laughs) that is where uh, we got Bernard from. Of course, yeah. So that was it's it's just so interesting to see how like the spider webs with player networks interact and. Um, but it, it is bizarre. So that, so he was cut from Porto's you set up looking for a different club. He moved, although Porto is very close to the neighborhood where Andre Gomez grew up, he moved to an even more local club called Pastelliera from, for one year, it was a very small club needed to kind of kickstart his career and get back. And it's interesting because imagine when you're, Let's see, he would have been 15 or so in your cut by your boyhood club. And this is a pretty major setback and something that's probably really difficult to process after you've been su- successful for so long. And you t- and we'll, of course, talk about the other challenging things that Andre's gone through in his career. But this was kind of like the first obstacle that he had to face. And he responded to it really well. He went to Pastelliera for a year and, and really impressed quite a bit. Um and then the next year, he went to another club in the same region called Boa Vista. There in the first division, Pasileiras in the lower divisions of Portuguese football. So he he impressed for one year, got into the top division youth setups. And actually, interestingly enough, Boa Vista is one of only five clubs total that have ever won the Portuguese championship, the first division. Those clubs, of course, being the big three in Portugal, Porto, Benfica, and Sporting CP. Otherwise known as Sporting Lisbon. And then Belenesis is the other one besides Boa Vista. Crazy the lack of parity in the Portuguese league. Yeah, I was I was blown when I read that. Um, because it 
you would think like the league has been around for so long. Don't go. I don't, I don't know how long, but so long, I'm going to say it. And you only have five victors that that's pretty insane. I mean, you look at the premier league and only a couple of years ago, we had the, uh, the dark horses who were literally betting favorites for low or for 20th place win the league. So you would think it could happen at least once, but nonetheless, that's a topic for another day, I think. Exactly. So, so after Boa Vista, he moved to Benfica. And this is where he sort of made his breakthrough into first team football. So at 18 years old, he joins Benfica. And for the two years that he was there, he kind of bounced between the B team and the A team. He had, for example, in between 2012 and 2014, he had 17 appearances with nine goals and eight assists for their B team. But in 2012, 2013, he also had 18 appearances for the first team with two goals. So he was kind of like, even at 18, he was on the cusp of senior football. And then 2013, 2014, he made it five additional appearances on the previous year. So 23 total appearances and again, two goals. So this is where his real breakthrough kind of, he was finally achieved that. Absolutely. So he was playing over under his manager, Jorge Jesus. Um, and in 2014, right, the, the end of his 2013, 2014 season, where, as you said, he really broke through, that is where he won with Benfica the first treble in club history. So that included the league, uh, the cup competition, and then another cup competition called the Taca de da Liga, and or it might be Tasha da Liga, and and that is essentially the league cup for the first two divisions. So he started off his senior career literally in his essentially his first breakout season in his, in, a, in senior football at Benfica with a treble, and you could say that's that's very impressive, extremely impressive, and. The mention of Jorge Jesus, many Blues will remember the fact that we were linked with him following the sacking of Marco Silva. Jorge Jesus currently manages Flamenco in Brazil. Um, but at Benfica, Andre Gomez had some some pretty impressive teammates. He played alongside Nemanja Matic, Nicholas Gaitan, Axel Witzel, and Ramiro Funes Mori's brother, Rogelio Funes Mori, which is small world, man, small world. And... Last but not least, none other than Jan Oblak. So from this point, even when he first broke into his senior football career, he's already surrounded by some of who would then become some of the best players in all of world football. Yeah, I mean, th those names are, are that's a stacked list. So it really doesn't surprise me that they were able to win the first treble in club history. And to be honest, all of those players have gone on to have very successful careers to this point. Uh, so, you know, it. It's a testament to the type of quality that he had in that team and to be able to play with that quality each day, especially right when you break into to uh, essentially your senior career is is very good. Um, so from his 2013-2014 season, they ended it on the treble win first time in club history. He then gets a loan move to Valencia for the 2014-2015 season. Yeah, so this was his kind of true breakthrough season because... At Benfica, he had kind of struggled. He, he played quite a bit, but he wasn't a week-in, week-out starter. And he also struggled with some injury issues while there. But he was brought to Valencia by none other than Nuno Espirito Santo, of course, current manager of Wolves. And interesting connection there. They actually have the both have the same agent in Jorge Mendez. And so he was brought to Valencia and on in that first season on loan, he was immediately a fixture in this in the midfield for that side. He played almost every game and across two seasons, he had 78 total appearances with eight goals and eight assists. Right. And that first season on loan, 
they actually finished fourth in the league qualifying for for Champions League. Now, you know, if if you pay attention to the La Liga at all or even just have a general knowledge of it. You know that Valencia is a very good team in La Liga, and finishing fourth is definitely not um, outside of of the possibility, of, on, honestly, for for most seasons. And so, you know, definitely a very important or impressive finish for them, and they qualified for for Champions League football. And then, after um, being there for a year on loan, he then joined permanently uh, for the 2015-2016 season. And that's when he actually had two other managers in none other than Gary Neville, if anyone remembers his short stint at Valencia, and then a fellow named Paco Ayesterin. Um, Both of those were, I think, for like four, five, six month um, stints apiece. Yeah, and the performances under both those managers were pretty poor, but just an interesting crossing of paths with Gary Neville managing in Spain and coming across a young Andre Gomez. but. Some of his stats while at Valencia, pretty interesting. This is, again, this is probably the best spell that he's had in his career thus far. Offensively, you're looking at he was getting almost one and a half shots per game, almost a full key pass per match and 1.5 dribbles. And then defensively, making 1.4 tackles per match, half of an interception and only dribbled past 1.1 times, which is is not great. And we know that Andre Gomez's defensive abilities aren't his strong suit. But, you know, playing in central midfield, you're more inclined to be dribbled past, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you can tell that at a place at a, at a place like Valencia, he was definitely more of a of a fixture in the central midfield. He, he could be the guy that they went to. And I think that shows in his offensive stats, specifically just showing that he enjoyed being a box to box midfielder at Valencia. And he contributed with quite a few shots and, and key passes and that sort of thing. So it was good to see, as you said, defensive stats. I mean, he's not the best defender, but that that's okay. Now, the interesting thing, um, interesting players that he played with at Valencia. Uh, yes, this list does go on just like the last one at Benfica. He played with none, none other than Jao Cancelo, Schroden Mustafi, uh, Paco Alcacer, uh, Nicholas Otamenti, uh, Denis Cheryshev, and uh, Matt Ryan, who's the Australian keeper at Brighton currently. So... Another another long list of notable names. Trust me, we left some off, so there are still other pretty noticeable names there. But you know, Valencia has always been a, a quite a good club, and it was, as you said, it was probably his most successful stint in his professional career to this point. Yeah, and furthermore, off of the the back of the 2015-2016 season, he actually earned a spot, of course, with Portugal at the Euros, where they, of course, won, which was unbelievable and pretty unexpected for the time. And that was, again, kind of his breakthrough. And and that, between his season at Valencia and his performance at the Euros, that put him on the radar of his next club, none other than, of course, Barcelona. Yeah, so Barcelona, it's it's no secret. That's where um, we got him from in Everton. He came in 2016 under, initially, the manager Luis Enrique. He actually stayed there for three years, 2016 through 2019. And so that saw... Um, Ernesto Valverde also managed the club in that time. But you can say, you can see uh, based on his stats and, and his appearances that he definitely had a drop off in just his his production and, and his efficiency on the pitch, right? So he had 78, 78 appearances for Barcelona also, only three goals and four assists. Um, but I think it's safe to say that, you know, with those goals and assist number and, and being, you know, you're saying like he's go, he's staying in the same league from Valencia to Barcelona. 
So it's not necessarily going to be a big difference or, or a big, um, a, a big, it's not going to take him a long time to get used to the competition. Like, you know, coming to the premier league, how we have to think when it comes to players coming to Everton, but he obviously still had to get used to a new system. Um, and so I think that that kind of shows, even just looking at the goals and appearances, that he was probably less of a factor in Barcelona. And that's understandable because Barcelona are always historically one of the best clubs in the world, at least in recent times. Yeah, and you talk about it similar to the conversation we had about Luca Dean, where you go from being maybe one of the, the key best players in a side to being maybe the second thought, afterthought, whatever you want to say. And players kind of struggle with that adaptation. And, and Andre Gomez has spoken on record extensively about how challenging that time at Barcelona was, where the expectations and pressure are almost incomparable to anything else he'd experienced in his career to that point. And his mental health took a severe blow. He struggled mentally with the pressure, with having to live up to the expectations of the fans. And like you said, Alex, you know, you can look at just the goals and appearances, but if you dig into the underlying numbers a bit deeper, it tells an even, even maybe more telling story where he went from 1.3 shots per game to like half of a shot per game. And his key passes again, cut in half dribbles again. So his offensive stats almost cut in half or more in, in every category and his defensive stats went down as well. And you can talk about it maybe being a function of the offensive specifically where obviously he has players who are more than capable of creating their own offense in front of him with Messi, with Neymar, with all of those Luis Suarez, with the unbelievable team that they had. But the fact that he wasn't able to contribute as regularly and also the, the defensive stats sort of took a hit as well is pretty telling it was pretty clear that he did not fit in at Barcelona, right? Um, you don't have to be the star man to still be productive. I don't think that he, you know, he mentioned a lot of his mental health issues spanning from his time at Barcelona when he first came to Everton and, and just talked about like not feeling like he he was adapting the system, which is very apparent based on, I think, his numbers and and just the insane amount of pressure that being a Barcelona player puts on you. And so, you know, it wasn't necessarily the best move of his career. But listen, there are many, many fantastic players that go to Barcelona and do not succeed. And so, you know, I don't think either one of us want the takeaway from his from his couple years at Barcelona to be that he wasn't good enough to make it at the highest level. He just wasn't a good fit for Barcelona themselves. Um, now, in terms of who he played with at Barcelona, he obviously played with many, many good players at Barcelona um, but just a couple I wanted to highlight, obviously Lionel Messi, I'm going to, I'm going to say it, but, uh, Lucas Dean and Yeri Mina were both at Barcelona during his time, as I'm sure most know. So he, he was, he was mingling with his, uh, future teammates at Everton as well. And, you know, despite the fact that he didn't maybe contribute as much as he would have liked on the pitch, Barcelona were of course, consistently winning trophies there regardless and he won La Liga twice with them the Copa del Rey twice and the Supercopa de España twice so for for a couple years there not a bad trophy haul hard to hard to fault him for that right and, and don't get me wrong uh, maybe not being efficient maybe not putting out the best performances is not synonymous to straight up not contributing so he absolutely earned um his trophies and his uh his medals in his in his case and before we move into Andre Gomez's Everton career, we want to touch on the rest of his international career. So as James mentioned earlier, he was a standout performer in the, in the 2016 Euros when Portugal won the tournament. But 
he had a pretty pretty seasoned career with the national team to that point. So he played with the Portugal U-17s through the U-21s uh, from t- 2010 to 2014, made 37 appearances and scored six goals. So you can tell that he was very much largely making every single possible youth appearance in those four years judged on um, the amount that he amassed. Right. And so at, from being a, a prolific contributor to the youth setup, he then moved to the first team from 2014 to current day. Of course, he hasn't featured for the Portuguese national team since he's been at Everton, but he does have 29 caps, senior caps. And like we mentioned, was a really, really strong performer during the 2016 Euros, which got him his move to Barcelona. And then in 2017, while at Barcelona, he finished third with Portugal for the Confederations Cup. So, you know, hopefully he can get back to featuring for Portugal very soon. I know they have quite a strong young generation of players moving up, but I don't think that the curtain is closed on his international career just yet. It's absolutely not. And, you know, that's that that him along with others like Lucas Dean, you know, coming to Everton, the whole idea is to a help Everton uh, build build to the project and the heights that we want to reach, but also to help rebuild their national team career. And, and this is a good place to do that. Absolutely. So let's talk about the loan move. Everton, Everton bring in Andre Gomez late on as a loan. And in that first season under Marco Silva, I think he made some really positive first impressions for the Blues. Right. Well, you remember when we got him on loan in 2018 and late in the summer, he had a leg injury. And so he didn't even feature for the first time for Everton on his loan season until October. And so he he was a couple... He was a couple months late to the party, and then, as you imagine, right, or as most most of you know, when you, when you come from a, a pretty long term mid mid to long term injury like that, it takes time to get match fit. And so, not only did he not make his first appearance on loan until October, but you know, you really couldn't expect him to get into the rhythm of things until later on towards, let's say, the winter of that season. Yeah, and you can see the growing pains or the adjustment factor factor into his statistics with Everton, and they unfortunately resemble much more closely his statistics during his less than prolific spell at Barcelona than they do when he was at his best at Valencia. But so far for the Blues under three managers, of course, Marco Silva, Duncan Ferguson, and Carlo, he's amassed 41 appearances, one goal and two assists. So not not the greatest output. And furthermore, his advanced statistics, half a shot per game, less than half of a key pass, 1.5 dribbles. And defensively, again, it's not the brightest picture. We know that last season with Adrisa Ganagay alongside him, that seemed to be kind of the ideal position for him with someone who was willing to put in the energy and fight on and winning the ball back, whereas he could contribute to moving the ball forward, finding passing lanes and contributing more on the offensive side. But looking at, you know, dribbled past 2.2 times per 90 minutes during his time at Everton, it just further strengthens the theory that he he's really not a central defensive midfielder at all. Doesn't suit him. Right. I mean, and, and you know what, you and I can talk a little bit more in depth and know a little bit more about his time at Everton and, and the kind of style of play that we've seen. And we know that at his time in Everton, he's a lot of the time asked to play a little deeper than maybe, let's say, he could he would have been at Valencia when he's he was very prolific statistically on attack, right? And so, you know, we know that even when he was paired with Jerisa Ganagay, he wasn't always venturing forward the most because, you know, Gilfie Sigurdsson had like a free roam role in the attacking midfield 
position. And so I think Andre Gomez is very much the type of player that needs to be in a setting in which his strengths are, you know, are, are focused on in, in, in the type of role he's asked to play. Um, but here's a little funny tidbit. His very first training session at Everton, he actually didn't have clothes for training. I don't know if he just didn't expect to train the first day or maybe maybe they didn't have his training kits ready. So um, none other than our former captain, Phil Jagielka, actually gave him his full kit and, and showed him around, show him you know, where, where the kit man is and all this other good stuff. So that's a nice little tidbit. Uh, shout out to Philly Jags for sure. Good old Jimmy Martin, the kit man, hopefully got him situated shortly thereafter. And, you know, with Everton, it has been a, a bumpy road for him. No one needs to be reminded of the horrible injury that he suffered last earlier last or late last year that with the ankle, Hyung Son Min. And he, he finally gets back, makes his debut while we're over in England. And then the season just gets indefinitely postponed right when we're kind of hoping to see him return to his best. And furthermore, I think we had a lot of really high hopes for Andre coming into the season after the signing of JPG Jean-Philippe Gabamin, because we thought that that's exactly the sort of player that suits playing alongside Andre, someone who's willing to, again, maybe sit a little deeper, win balls back, and then allow Andre to sort of serve as that connector between the defense and the front line that I think really is is where he thrives the most. You took the words right out of my mouth because JPG was on the top of my mind after we were talking about the type of role that he fits into and what what could play to his strengths. Um, and, and just a little quick fact um, for you on his time at Everton to wrap it up. Everton is the only team he has been involved with that has not played Champions League football. So although that may sound very negative, the way I'd like to spin it is, if Andre Gomez has anything to say about it, he's not going to leave Everton before he gets a Champions League appearance. I really like that spin quite a bit, Alex. That's a good uh, good way to put it. I want to ask, because just as like a final little sort of point of discussion, you know, we see that the stats aren't that great since he's been at Everton. We know that, as you mentioned, he came with an injury and then, of course, suffered the really, really unlucky, unfortunate ankle injury. Do we still have full belief that Andre Gomez is our our answer in central midfield moving forward. Because for me, it seems like maybe he doesn't have the legs necessarily to, to consistently do, or maybe it's the system. I don't know. Maybe everything will fall into place once JPG comes back. I, I still think we will see better from him and we know that the potential is there, but at his age 26, you know, he should be approaching his prime. And I just hope that, that Carlo sees the quality in him and is able to to get the best out of Andre because I do think he's a really good player. He maybe just have maybe he's been a bit of a, a victim of circumstance with his time at the club so far. Yeah, I mean that that's a good question. You look at it objectively and you say, okay, he had two mid to long term injuries, you know, one per season he's been at Everton. And so Stats might not suggest a full, you know, 40 appearances per season in which he can really hit the ground running and find a stride. We also look at the fact that he's been under numerous managers. We know that none of our starting 11s have been consistent over the last two years. And so it's not like he was able to create a great partnership. But as you mentioned, the one time it really did work well is when he was partnered with Ghana Gay, which was two seasons ago. I think that Andre Gomez can be our answer in central midfield for that box to box role. But 
there are two factors. A, Carlo Ancelotti is the first factor, right? He is a world-class manager. He is one of the most winningest managers in the game right now. And so if anyone can get the best out of, out of Andre Gomez at Everton, it's going to be Carlo Ancelotti. And I think B, you know, to your point about he, he, he's, not, he's not the fastest, especially for not like a box-to-box type of midfielder, but his passing range is really good. His technical ability is good. He can hold the ball and retain possession well. So on top of JPG partnering him in a, in a deeper central midfield area, you never know, maybe someone with, with more legs than Gilfie Sigurdsson in attacking midfield, let's say Alex Awobi, could also bring the best out of him because you're injecting more energy. And as we know, I mean, look at, look at um, a lot of possession-based teams with, with these fantastic midfield maestros that don't run all the time, right? Like, i.e. Pirlo. I'm not, cons- I'm not comparing him to Pirlo. Please Whoa. don't take that. I'm just saying he didn't have the legs. He had a good passing ability and the system was set up for Andrea Pirlo. And so the same can be done with Andre Gomez, put some energy around him. And I think Carlo can, can figure out what his real level is going to be at Everton. Yeah, that's a good point. We talked about just to bring the, the third midfielder into the conversation. I think there needs to be a balance. And we know that so far this season, we have not had any kind of consistent balance in midfield, there's it's been very discombobulated. We've been shredded by injuries. And so with a fully healthy squad and Andre in there alongside whoever the other two are, I, I still think that there's a lot of synergy that can be found and, and better performances that can be brought out of him because he's the best at what he does that we have in our midfield at the moment. And we have a lot of other maybe pieces that don't fit or pieces that don't have a long-term future. But I do think Andre does serve a role going forward under Ancelotti. And I think he recognizes that as well. And, you know, aside from the statistics, aside from all the on-field stuff, all of the trials and tribulations that he's gone through at Everton and his openness to talk about it, I think that's really what makes him a fan favorite more than anything he's done while on the football pitch. He just comes across as such a likable guy. He really has bought into the ethos of Everton Football Club. And I think that buys him a lot of credibility with the fans. And I think everyone is rooting for him to succeed. Some people may be already writing him off, whether he's the long-term answer. But for me, I still think that there's brighter days ahead for Andre. Very well put and very well said. Before we wrap things up, uh, we want to give a a quick special shout out to Tony Sampson's son. Uh, This episode was handpicked, was suggested and asked asked for by him. He just started tuning into the American Toffee podcast. So we really hope you, you enjoyed it. Thank you so much, buddy, for, uh, for your support. And until next week for our next player profile, again, if you have any suggestions, please let us know. Um, We appreciate you tuning in and up the toffees. Thanks for tuning into the American Toffee podcast. Come join our Discord community at invite.gg slash ATP and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at USA Toffee Pod.